Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Postnatal depression is a tough thing to battle. But what if it felt like you couldn't share your feelings with anyone because it just wasn't talked about in your culture? For Antoinette Latouf, opening up to her Lebanese mother about her struggles was one of the hardest things she ever had to do. Antoinette is a senior reporter at Channel 10, co-founder and director of Media Diversity Australia and ambassador for the Gidget Foundation, a non-profit organisation that provides programs to support the emotional well-being of expectant and new parents. Hi, Antoinette. How are you? Hi. Thanks for having me today. Can you tell us a little bit about your family background? So your mother's Lebanese? Both my parents are Lebanese. They came to Australia in the 70s as civil war refugees. We had a a lovely childhood, but a really working class childhood. Um, We had seven children. There was a lot of death and tragedy in the family. So I grew up with a really amazingly resilient and strong mother who, despite the odds, did everything she could to provide a fabulous future for her children, which she did. But a lot of that genuine struggle or textbook struggle that she endured would later come back to haunt me because I would think that my life, these were first world problems and my life was too peachy and rosy and I never saw people get executed and I never had to go through bodies in a church to see who was alive and I didn't witness my brother be killed and, you know, all of those really horrific things that you would think would elicit or bring on a form of post-traumatic stress disorder or or impact you quite significantly. Um, Yeah, so that experience compounded how I would later feel when I became a mother. Yeah, so um, when did you discover that you had postnatal depression? Because sometimes it's hard. Like sometimes you think, oh, I'm just... I'm just got the I'm just a bit sad. This is hard. It's normal for me not to feel great. When did you actually realize that it was postnatal depression? I think lucky for me because of my work as a journalist, I'd always had an interest in mental health and mental health stories. So, even though reporting on it is one thing, um I do feel I was probably more educated and more in touch with the sector and the illnesses than perhaps a regular person. I would say I had mild postnatal depression with my first daughter um, because after she was born, I had difficulty sleeping. I would pace up and down the halls. I felt this kind of erratic, irrational fear. Um, But I was able to deal with it. Like I didn't enjoy motherhood. I enjoyed it for the first four months, but I was okay afterwards and things turned around with a bit of exercise. When it came to my second daughter, and I was about 37 weeks pregnant, a lot of anticipating how I would feel, the anticipation of depression or anxiety can often be a horrible self-perpetuating beast. And I became um, unable to eat and unable to sleep and really quite unhealthily thin for someone who was so in, um, so heavily pregnant. Um, and after, you know, ask anyone after four nights of not sleeping, you're really going to struggle. Um, and so it was at that point that I spoke to my midwife and spoke to a GP and said, I'm, I'm not okay. I feel like I'm losing my mind. I can't have this baby. Um, but I was reassured at that point that a lot of women feel jittery with their second because you know what's coming. You kind of go in blind with your first. So I was reassured that I just needed some things to help me sleep and that I would be okay. And then when you had your baby... So yeah, when I had my baby, I soon realised I wasn't okay because it was the f- first night at hospital and um, 
when they handed her to me, I just quickly, I just felt really disconnected and I passed her straight on to my husband. Um, and then that night, I didn't feel any joy, which some people would say, oh, you're so tired and your body's in shock, but I didn't feel any joy. I didn't feel anything. Um, but I guess it all came to a head that evening um, because I was ab- unable to sleep despite laboring through the night and the morning. And anybody who's had a baby knows it's the most exhausting thing. So even though my baby was asleep, I couldn't sleep. And I was thinking of ways to escape the hospital. I was so panicked and felt so claustrophobic and restrained in the hospital that I kept making excuses while I'd need to walk up and down the hallway. I had my catheter attached <laughs> and I was literally, I was looking at exit routes. Um, the midwife I had spoken to earlier, I was obviously on her radar, came and she found me um, and then she stayed with me. Um, so I'm, I feel very fortunate that they knew something wasn't right. Um, but the next morning I convinced them that I needed to get out of the hospital, that I was fine. And really I felt that if I would escape the hospital walls, I would somehow escape how I was feeling. But that didn't work out that, that way. That didn't work out that way. No. And it's so interesting, isn't it, that, um, as you say, reporting on something like mental health and knowing even how to manage it, really, because you managed it the first time in mm-hmm. different ways. Yes. You mentioned exercise and, and things got easier. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of that contradiction. It doesn't matter how educated you are when it hits you, the actual feeling of it yes. is overwhelming. Yes, absolutely. And, and frightening terrifying. Um, I think it was about two weeks postpartum and every night I would convince myself that this is, you know, the regular textbook baby blues that you're warned about. I'm just a little bit tired. And on that, at that time, I was still on sleeping aids to help me sleep. But they were only a short term. I was told you can only take them for a couple of weeks because they really are just a Band-Aid. So when that Band-Aid came off, everything that I was feeling culminated and escalated. And it was just, it was absolutely terrifying. Um, so I would hate to be left in the same room as her. So I would often find excuses to leave the room. People say that having your newborn baby on your chest is an amazing feeling. I would just feel choked up and it's horrible to say, but I would feel disgusted and, and revolted and then guilt, an enormous amount of guilt because I have this beautiful baby who's latched on beautiful and I had a textbook delivery and everything was fine. There were... You know, there, there was no reflux and there was no, there were no problems. And so that would just make me think, well, what's wrong with you? Yeah, what's wrong with me? Yeah. And particularly, as you mentioned before, you've had a history and a family history that you would be comparing yourself to. You'd be like, well, there's, I've got a perfect baby. Everything's fine. Yeah. Uh, what an enormous amount of pressure to put on yourself. An enormous amount of pressure and an enormous amount of guilt. So every time I would speak to my mum, she would try and think of, physical or physiological things that it might be to mm. justify it because that was the only way that she could reconcile. And she would say, oh, maybe it's your thyroid or, you know, maybe <laughs> yes. you've got mastitis. And it was everything physical because she was unable to understand why I would just cry all the time. And I was mm. not the type of person who would cry because I'm like a bit of a hardened journalist. You know, I've been at plenty of death scenes and death knocks and funerals and it takes a lot to make me cry. So all of all of a sudden I... Um, just stopped eating and stopped sleeping um, and I would cry all the time and I would act really irrationally and, and pace up and down the hallways and um, still I tried to, to say, oh, yeah, I'll get my thyroid check. I'll, you know, I tried to um, sort of allay her fears or just say what I thought she needed to hear. Um, and then one day, 
guess that was the turning point where I realised I really needed help was when I was driving, I think, just to Leichhardt or something, and my daughter was crying in the back seat. And um, at the intersection, I just thought, oh, I'm going to drive into the traffic because that will make things better. <sighs> it's really hard to talk about, but... At that point, I honestly thought that if I drove into traffic that everything would be better. And so I started to, and then everybody started bipping, and I had this moment where I was like, no, pull yourself together. And I called my parents, and they came over. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not okay. I can't look after this baby. And I guess that, for me, was the point that I realised this is not just baby blues. This is not just exhaustion. This is bona fide um, mental illness, and let's just call it what it is so that we can get on with things and address it. And as horrific as that experience was for you, it's, you're not alone in thinking that, driving into the traffic, driving into the back of a truck. At Women this, think that way when they've... At this point, I can see that. But when you're in it, you don't believe it. You just think that something's really wrong with you, that you don't, you're undeserving of being a mother, you're, that you're not fit to be a mother, and that um, you don't think, all oh, this is something that other people have experienced also because people don't talk about it. And this goes back to in my, com- in my community, people don't talk about mental struggles. Um, later, because I've been so vocal about my journey, people have subsequently come forward. I had an aunt who said, you know, I cried and thought about self-harm for two years, every day for two years, but I didn't know what it was called then. And nobody, I couldn't talk to anybody. Mm. So I think women have suffered in silence for a very long time, you know, and other people were told, oh, pray and do these cultural rituals. Um, But I know no amount of praying and no amount of meditation was going to help me at that really horrible low juncture, that low point in my life. The interesting thing that you would have known about mental health as well is as as a journalist and reporting on it, and, and most people would talk about it this way, is that it's called an illness for a reason. So even though your mum might have been talking about things that were horrific and real and and painful experiences. Postnatal depression, as you were experiencing it, is a real illness. It was nothing to do with how you whether you were deserving of being a mother or anything like that. It's completely separate to that. It's all going happening in the chemicals in your brain. And she's since become more educated on it, and my husband has as well. You know, I would often try and hide things from him because I didn't want to fail him. I didn't want to show him that I wasn't the mother that he thought I could be or was, or it's particularly because I was that with my older daughter. So there was that level of guilt. He has since become quite really educated in the mental health space and an advocate in his own right based on his experience and because mental illness affects the whole family. Um, And so he was really impacted by my experience and would spend um, the nights getting up and doing feeds because I was in the other room and just didn't want to be in the same room as my baby. Um, And I call her my baby because at at that time she wasn't really a person to me. I didn't connect with her. She wasn't my beautiful Amelie, who's um, four and a half now. But that was really hard on him, seeing his wife the way I was, um, getting up all all hours of the night and pretending to be okay and going, I'm okay, I'm going to go to work, and then going and doing a 12-hour day at work. Like, he was amazing, and he stepped up in the way that I absolutely needed him to be. Is he from the same community background? He is. He is. Again, there was no mental illness discussion in his family, although, you know, aunts and uh, were on antidepressants in secret and people suffered secretly. Um, you know, and even some relatives on his side would comment about, you know, why, why do you talk about this or isn't it embarrassing to talk about this? We'll be back with Antoinette in just a minute. 
When you become a parent, you enter an exclusive club, one that only other parents can truly understand. I spent a lot of time running and yelling names. Come back, get back here. But I bought him one of those backpacks that had a lead, like, you know, a monkey one. Because it doesn't look as bad. Yeah, like a disguise. (laughs) The Parent Panel is a weekly podcast that invites adults to ponder the big questions of looking after small children with more than a bit of humour mixed in. Join us for The Parent Panel wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned one part in terms of the trauma that many communities had come from. So second generation, the trauma of the first generation in terms of civil war, etc. But is there also an element culturally to this approach, like you mentioned, this embarrassment about admitting oh, you abs- have a... absolutely. Particularly in a culture that's very patriarchal, where maternal instincts are meant to reign supreme, where women have many children. My mother's one of... I'm one of seven. My mother's one of 12. You know, my husband's mother's one of 10 or 12. Wow. Um, and so they are, by very nature, culturally very nurturing, and they cook for an army, and they're all encompassing and very loving. And, you know, that's a very beautiful role. And that's the, that's the mother I you know grew up with, and that's also what my mother-in-law's like. But then here I was, unable to reconcile my identity, my professional identity, my independence, or my my desire to still maintain that independence, as well as having that cultural element to my life. Um, and I think that was another part of the problem. I I didn't have any examples or blueprints of how to be a first generation, so a, a modern Australian who is still connected and proud of her heritage. Um, a lot of women I've subsequently spoken to have similar struggles. They may be excelling professionally or, you know, uh, may really enjoy travel or a part of their life that wasn't necessarily how their families um, enjoyed and experienced life. And so part of it would be, oh, it's because you're selfish or it's because you love your work more than your family. Um, and it's so interesting because you don't, as a, um, my background is like back to the convicts and I still see social stigma around women who choose to work and have babies. and But I don't see that pressure often coming from family. I see that a lot as pressure coming from peers or media or whatever it might be. But what you're talking about is a really entrenched absolutely. pressure yes. that goes filters through the entire family. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think hopefully for my children, I have carved out another option. And, you know, what I believe feminism has done for women is give us options. And my daughter sometimes says to me, um, oh, mommy, I want to have seven babies like Data, which is grandma. I said, honey, (laughs) if you want to have seven babies, you can have seven babies. If you want to have no babies, you can have no babies. You know, and I I try and let her realize that it is an option and she will find happiness irrespective. Um, Because I don't know whether my My postnatal depression, you know, obviously part of its chemical imbalance. I don't know whether it had anything to do with me being unable to reconcile this really strong, beautiful cultural heritage I have, but with this really, you know, modern, ambitious, independent woman I also am. And how do you reconcile the two? I don't know, but I certainly know that the guilt of being who I was and experiencing what I did made me think, well, I'm not up to scratch as those those maternal wonder women that my mother was because she was so poor and had seven children and had no husband helping and she was happy and look at me, I'm an absolute mess and I, and I can't function. And I'm thinking about harming myself and harming my baby. And since you've come out and told your story, 
you've had people come up and say, oh, well, I've had similar oh, problems so with mental many. illness in your community? As well as in other communities. And I, sometimes after every, every time I speak about it and I struggle and I'm all teary and snotty and bl- bl- blabbery <laughs> like I am now, I think, oh, can I do this again? Um, but there, there's been Vietnamese women who've come up to me and said, you know, I translated your article into Vietnamese and I gave it to my mother because this is my story. I've had Indian women who talk about struggles with, you know, living within laws or uh, mother-in-law expectations or cultural rituals around a woman needing to stay indoors for the first 40 days. And, oh, my gosh, I couldn't even stay indoors for one day. I had to leave the hospital. My anxiety was so bad. I think that if I had to stay indoors for 40 days, I, I may not be here today. Um, so that gives me the motivation to continue to share my story, to use my platform as a journalist. Um, and I'm okay with people ask me now that your daughters are getting older. And uh, my seven-year-old Googled my name the other day and she, she found some pictures and some articles. And now that she can read, she said, oh, what's postnatal, mummy? Um, I tried to explain to her simply, I don't want to burden her too much, um, I am aware of the fact that my little girl will be able to read these articles and hear these pod- podcasts. I don't ever want her to feel that she did this to me. And you know, part of me is part of this eternal guilt is, am I going to make her feel bad? Am I going to damage her by, you know, because this is what happened once I gave birth to her. Um, but we know that it's not the child's fault. We know it's not the mother's fault. Um, and, the more we, and the more we talk about it. Um, hopefully the more people can, can see that. And the more, I, I can't see that she, I would think that you telling this story makes it easier for her. I hope so. I yeah, hope so. of course, of course. Look at you. She's going to grow up thinking you're Wonder Woman. Oh, She'll be like, oh, so. thank goodness, mum wasn't perfect. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> you know, um, talking about the difficulties, especially in social media. And that's another thing because I was so painfully thin. Everybody on social media saw a photo of me two or three days postpartum. And they were like, oh, my God, you look amazing, babe. Right back out there, you know, just (laughs) bounced right back. And I thought, oh, I just have to dispel this myth. I am so unwell. I am so terrified of my thoughts. I don't know if I could make it through the week. And at at that time, I really didn't believe, you know, I had, I saw a doctor on Thursday and he made, he did, pushed pulled all his strings and did everything he could to get me to see a psychiatrist as soon as possible. And that was Monday. And I remember sobbing, sobbing on the floor of his practice saying, I can't make it to Monday. And at that point, I absolutely believed I couldn't make it to Monday. And that's terrifying of course it to is. think that on Thursday, making it to Monday was impossible. So you can report on it and read about it and listen to this podcast, but nothing prepares you for the depths of despair. Yeah. Um, and... and- the honesty with which you've told the story, you mentioned the Vietnamese woman who read the article and translated it for her parents. Is that honesty getting through to a generation of people who, like you said, have come from trauma, probably never been counselled for it, probably yeah. suffered in horrific mental illness in silence? Is it breaking through, that honesty? Look, I hope it is. I can only talk anecdotally and I can see, you know, my mother... She comes to events and my public speaking things and things the Gidget Foundation. There's there's a bit of a a silent acceptance. Um, But I know subsequently I'm getting calls from cousins, next door neighbours, friends, sister's daughter, you know, (laughs) and they say, we know this happened to you. Can you help her? Um, Can you speak to her? And so the fact that these people would never have acknowledged my condition and now 
reaching out on behalf of somebody else who they recognize has it. You know, mm. I get a call or an email like that about once a week. Wow. Um, and so to that extent, or um, I think it's helping. Um, I certainly know it's opened up conversations in my extended family and my husband's extended family, which is both quite large. Um, so yes, it will it will take time and lots of tears. Um, and and how about you? Because um, it is definitely satisfying to be able to help people if they reach out to you. Um, perhaps there's a, a healing element of that. I'm not sure that telling your story emotionally is necessarily healing. It's good to get the feedback that you've helped people, yeah, but actually I, going through it. I spoke at a at an event. In, in Canberra earlier this year and it was incredibly difficult and I just thought to myself what's the what's the cost benefit here um I really struggled and there was actually a psychiatrist in the room who sat next to me and contacted me me afterwards and I stepped away from a bit of writing and speaking because at that time um things were quite stressful in life and my mental illness is a journey now. So while I'm nowhere near what I was before, there are still symptoms. And if things escalate, I'll start being unable to sleep, unable to eat, have a racing heart, have some morbid thoughts. So I need to be careful and take care of myself. This isn't something that I have done and dusted and and packed away in a box as a, as, as a, mem- as a memory. It's something that persists. Um, so I've just got to try and look after myself and, and say no. You know, there's sometimes people who say, I need to meet for a coffee, I need to talk to you, and I, I have to put them off or um, suggest um, a counselling service or a GP instead. Yeah, because there's only so much. I mean, it's good that they can connect with your story. But like you said, it, it, mental illness is something that needs to, it's a journey rather than a, there's no silver bullet, is there? No, absolutely not. And my, my treatment continues and my journey continues. But the point that um, what I do love about your story and that I think is so important for people to hear, regardless of whether they're from a migrant community or not, is that you got help and you got better. Yes, it's a continuous thing, but you're a successful woman who's started a foundation to support other people. You're a senior journalist. You're part of the Gidget Foundation. So even though it was awful at the time, you were but able to get better. I was, but there are still people in my immediate and extended family who are vehemently opposed to medication, who will constantly criticise that route. And I think when it comes to people's treatment, I mean, I would have tried anything. I exercised, I meditated, I tried medication. I had two psychologists, a psychiatrist. I was so unwell. I was close to being um, admitted to hospital. Um, so there's still that stigma, even though they see that I was able to bounce back and get better, utilising all of the above that I've listed. Um, I still think we need to challenge the attitudes towards medication because so many of them are on thyroid and diabetes and all these other medication and pop neurofen and um, anti-reflux medications like it's Smarties, um, but are still so reluctant to, or dabble in illicit substances to make themselves to numb the pain, um, but are still quite judgmental and reticent to talk about antidepressants. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot to be done there. Well, Antoinette, it's been such an interesting conversation. Um, before I go, though, what would you say if, if someone is listening from a migrant community and they're feeling connected to your story um, and they may need support themselves, where would you say to go first to them? My absolute lifeline was um, I called PANDA, the Perinatal Anti-Depression 
hotline. Um, I just Googled it and whoever that woman was that answered saved my life. I absolutely am sure of it. Um, go and see a trusted GP. Check out Gidget Foundation. They've opened up um, in Western Sydney, in Canberra. But if you're in regional areas, they do video conferencing. And it can be expensive, but there are ways with the mental health plan um, to be able to get subsidised counselling. Um, but a good GP and calling, I mean, I think I called that number at some ungodly hour, but calling somebody um, who's not in your family, who you won't feel judged by, that was the first step for me, getting help. Okay. Antoinette, thank you so much for your honesty and for talking to us today. Thank you. That's Antoinette Latouf. She's a senior reporter at Channel 10, co-founder and director of Media Diversity Australia and ambassador for the Gidget Foundation. For more on their work, check out the links in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced by Debbie Ning and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. We'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email us at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.